there's a handout. I think it will help if you have one. I see that there are some uh, more up here if people don't, uh, if you don't have one. Um, I came up with it just because uh, I'm going over, it, when, I'm compare, when you're comparing the thought of uh, different people, then uh, I find it helpful at least to uh, have something to look at to remind myself. Um, now, uh, let me say, this is the first time I've been to um, Thomas Aquinas College, although my uh, wife was here about 15 years or uh, so ago. Uh, and what I want to say to the students is uh, to note how lucky you are. This is a beautiful place, absolutely stunningly beautiful. For some reason, maybe the grace of God, it was spared the fire. Um, and uh, you should be thankful uh, for that. Uh, the other thing is uh, the kind of curriculum. Um, I myself, uh, when I went to college, I went to the University of Texas at uh, Austin, uh, but the reason I went there was because I was invited into something called Plan 2, which doesn't make too much sense, but it was the honors program there, and so I had a, an education that is somewhat like uh, yours uh, uh, education, and I think that uh, you will find, if you didn't come here convinced of it already, that an education in the great books and the liberal arts will prepare you better than anything else uh, for both an intellectual, moral, and practical life, uh, no matter uh, what uh, will happen. Um, uh, one, uh, one word uh, about uh, uh, Dr. Hatrip. Uh, number one, I didn't realize I was uh, uh, quite that scary, but if it worked, it's okay, because he wrote one of the best uh, dissertations that it's been my privilege uh, to uh, direct. Okay, now, uh, the title is Science from Plato to Aristotle uh, to Us. Please consider the disciplines in a typical university, not this one, where physics, geology, and chemistry uh, are considered the true sciences and most other disciplines, let me name but a few, sociology, psychology, politics, or political science, if you will. Even education have spent the time since the death of Auguste Comte in 1857, desperately trying to model themselves upon those true sciences. For it was Comte who founded the intellectual movement called positivism, which set what he called positive science, and we now simply call science, at the head of all the disciplines. Uh, edu educated uh, at the Ecole Polytechnique uh, in uh, uh, a, the, the premier uh, French uh, educational institution um, in uh, practical matters of engineering, but with a philosopher's drive for comprehensive explanations, Comp held that progress in knowledge follows what he called the iron law of the three stages, the theological or fictitious, because divinity is provided the explanations, he was an atheist, the metaphysical, whose abstract laws are unverifiable, and the scientific or positive, whose laws are purely rational, empirical and mathematically precise. While, uh, this is my view at least, positivism is incoherent, uh, since the supremacy of positive science cannot be demonstrated using its own method, it's self-refuting actually, uh, 
nonetheless, uh, it's had a tremendous impact uh, on worldwide and especially uh, Western uh, culture. Even though it was, in my view, uh, thoroughly refuted uh, in the early 20th century, so philosophers don't take positivism uh, too seriously, but all the rest of us do. Um, it doesn't need to be this way, and it might not be that way again. Uh, now, so much for us. I wish I could talk uh, at greater length uh, on uh, the contemporary scientific scene and how we understand science, but I just uh, can't. We have to uh, move on. But I can tell you that the basis for my idea about uh, positivism and positive science uh, is based upon uh, the thought of Plato and Aristotle, and I'm going to devote the rest of my time to that. Uh, they developed a precise, technical conception of a kind of knowledge they call science, epistemia in Greek, ilm in Arabic, and scientia in Latin. For them, uh, science was an, uh, one of a number of interconnected uh, technical terms devised in order to explain how it is possible for humans to achieve true, universal, and necessary knowledge, this uh, last having been almost completely abandoned on the current Comtean conception of science. So for Plato and Aristotle, the issue had become a pressing one uh, because of the uh, sophists who had reacted against the traditional uh, teachers of the Greeks uh, called uh, sages or sophoi, uh, and as a sign of their uh, reaction, they added an ending onto the word uh, sophos and came up with uh, sophistes to show that they had the newest and up most updated uh, and current uh, ideas, all right? Um, uh, now, uh, in defense of this, uh, 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 the, this striving for necessary knowledge, okay? Uh, Socrates uh, was envisioned by Plato as not a wise sage or a sophist, uh, but as a uh, philosopher. And this was uh, taken to be a uh, technical term um, in order to try to show uh, that it is possible to uh, maintain the, uh, the old, the old uh, uh, the old goal of uh, achieving true wisdom and necessary knowledge. So that's really what I propose to uh, talk with you uh, about uh, this evening. So um, science uh, would maintain uh, the in an intimate connection with philosophy for uh, really uh, two millennia until the early uh, 19th uh, century. Uh, and I would like to mention one thinker whom I think everybody here uh, reads, who's a sort of an example of the influence of this conception of science, uh, and that is um, Sir Isaac Newton, whose uh, work was entitled, uh, what? The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. So what I'm offering you is a, a sort of look at a, a sense of science that was influential through the time of Newton uh, has sort of gone out of fashion over the last couple of centuries, uh, but I think uh, that uh, actually has been uh, a mistake. So if you look at your uh, handout, 
Up at the top, you'll see that there are what I call steps in the argument. So uh, we are now uh, starting on Plato's divided line. Uh, as with most of Aristotle's central philosophical doctrines, Plato's conception of science, uh, Aristotle's, I mean, came from a critical reception of Plato's thought, in this case, the divided line. And in order to understand Aristotle on uh, science, uh, I will begin, and I'll also uh, end, uh, with uh, Plato. Uh, now, uh, there are several versions of the line, uh, but I'll concentrate on one of the ones in the uh, Republic, uh, which you uh, all read. Um, but he seemed to have uh, offered uh, these uh, different versions, uh, and in all of them, uh, he says, knowledge always involves three factors. The things that are known are the objects of knowledge, the techniques or methods we use to acquire knowledge, and the kind of knowledge they produce in our mind. So if you look at the chart, I've made that, uh, I've used that distinction uh, between uh, or among uh, the kind of knowledge, the objects of knowledge, and the methods of knowledge, and I'll be sort of referring implicitly to that uh, for the rest of the uh, evening. Uh, now, um, after uh, a fair amount of preliminary work in books uh, one through five in the Republic, in book six, it's a long trek from book one to book, uh, to book six in the Republic, uh, Adiamansis, uh, sort of out of exasperation, I think he's kind of exhausted, uh, asked Socrates, well, aren't these virtues we've been talking about, the four cardinal virtues, the most important things? Is anything else more important than justice? And Socrates uh, gives uh, the abrupt reply, well, you've often heard it said that the idea of the good is the most important thing. All right? Now, uh, how should we understand good? The many say good is pleasure. Well, the cleverest, I think Plato's really referring to the historical Socrates, say it's knowledge. But there's a problem. Both pleasure and knowledge are subjective. They exist inside a human being. But the good needs to be real and independent of us. So that's why Socrates offers the three great images of the good, the sun, which shows it as a reality, the highest reality, the divided line, which shows the hierarchy of knowledge that corresponds to the hierarchy found in reality, and the cave to urge us to strive to achieve the good, not just to uh, know it. Now, if you look at, uh, at your chart, uh, the two bottom parts of the divided line are on one side and the two top ones uh, are on the other. Uh, if you, uh, so I'm gonna go up the divided line right now. Uh, the two lower levels, I name them four and uh, three, all right? We find things uh, called visibles um, and readers sometimes think that at this point Plato is talking about sensation, but, he's, but that's not right. He's talking about intellectual cognition since what they produce is opinion, which is an intellectual uh, operation. It's not a sensory uh, operation. You can see the sun, but you can think about it revolving around uh, the earth uh, and have an opinion uh, about that, all right? So all four levels of the divided line describe four levels of intellectual thinking, intellectual uh, cognition, all right? Now, uh, intellectual uh, thought arises when we look at one thing in the realm of visible changing things, 
and realize it's similar to another. So we're comparing two different things, like the shadow of a tree is compared to its image, or a reflection in water is compared to its image, or your reflection in a mirror. The image is one thing, the thing imagined in another, and Plato calls this kind of thinking akasia, which is sometimes translated as imagination, which is completely wrong, all right? It's image thinking, thinking where we're com comparing one thing to another and thinking of uh, one as the uh, image uh, of uh, another, okay? So uh, now we go on to uh, level three, which Plato uh, describes in a single sentence, which I think is an important one, so I'm gonna uh, read it out to you in English, of course. In the next section, put what this is an image of, that is say, the lowest section, the animals, he says animals in the plural around us, and all plants, another plural, and the whole genus of man-made things, yet another uh, plural. So if image thinking consists in comparing one indivisible thing with another, here the object understood is what the individual is like or is an image of. Plato's examples clarify the point by shifting our attention from individuals to classes. All, all of these kind of things, animals and plants and artifacts. So the difference is that the object of our mind is now what we nowadays call a universal or a genus or a class of things. Now, Plato doesn't tell us how our mind has moved from individual to looking at the group or thinking about the group, uh, but I think it's pretty clear we've done it by some sort of inductive generalization. So this is what happens, but because we've gone beyond the evidence that we're familiar with, what we've done, what we have to do is we have to trust in our knowledge and this produces opinion. So the reason why opinion characterizes both of the bottom lines of the uh, divided line uh, is because we are moving beyond what we've really experienced and in moving beyond, we can't be really sure that what we're saying uh, is true. Uh, now this presents a problem to which the top uh, two sections of the divided line are a solution. So the transition to the top two levels, uh, Socrates sets up mathematically. Would you believe, uh, be willing to say, he says, that the division be between truth and untruth is in this ratio. The object of opinion is to the object of knowledge as a likeness is to what it is like. That's a quotation. For knowledge to be necessary and universal requires that our mental gaze shift from the individuals in the world of change that are like each other to what they have in common. So while looking at this triangle, the object of our intellect really becomes the triangle itself, which must exist in an unchanging and higher mode in order to support necessary and universal knowledge of it or anything in our world. Consequently, the forms or exemplars or immaterial beings, um, that's what uh, they're called, and these causes can produce true knowledge. So we've, we've made the transition from the world of phenomena or changing things to the world of the forms, and it's absolutely necessary if we're gonna have any sort of necessary and universal uh, knowledge, okay? 
Now I'm going to say a couple of words about uh, knowledge at the uh, two uh, levels before we go on. Acquiring knowledge at level two, that's on my numbering system, second from the top, comes from dianoia or deductive reasoning which moves from principles assumed, which are called suppositions, to objects of inquiry and then conclusions that are deduced as the geometers do. And you all are, I hope, uh, thinking of uh, Euclid, uh, whom you read, although, of course, he comes a little bit later on the uh, timeline. Now, Plato recognized that such dianoetic deduction, if you don't mind me uh, saying it that way, depends upon forms that serve as hypotheses for such downward reasoning. But such principles can't be proven through deduction because deduction assumes such principles. So we've got a way of reasoning from premise to conclusion, but are the premises true? You can't know that through deductive reasoning, so that brings us up to what? The highest level, level one. At level one of the divided line, reason must reverse itself and I quote, travel up to a first principle using hypotheses not as principles from which the deductions follow, but using hypotheses, and I'm quoting again, as stepping stones from which to move upward and to reach the unhypothetical first principle of all. And he calls this process the science of dialectic, which is going to make us understand the forms which will be the fundamental first principles that give us the possibility of developing necessary uh, knowledge, okay? Um, and the ultimate principle, of course, is uh, the good, so that for Plato, there is but one discipline, not many, an all-encompassing wisdom sought by the lover of wisdom, the philosopher, and wisdom, which we can also call science, is achieved through the two-step process taking some premises we think are true or seem to be true, all right, drawing conclusions, seeing how that works, and then figuring out that we need to go further and our, uh, our uh, thought uh, arises to the most fundamental uh, principles. And then if you ask, how do you know them? They're not proven. You know them through insight, non-discursive thought. The insight that Jacques Maritain uh, once said is something that some people have. He was a very nice man, but he said some people have it and other people don't, and there's nothing you can do about the people who don't. <laughs> okay, now we're over, uh, turning over to uh, Aristotle, uh, and uh, I can see already that um, I'm gonna to have to cut even more out of this long paper than I had thought, but I will keep my mind on the good, okay? Now, in his School of Athens, the uh, great uh, painter and artist Raphael portrayed Plato pointing upward, we've seen why, while Aristotle stretches his hand directly out to us, the earthbound viewers, thereby illustrating how Aristotle had brought Plato's heavenly forms down to earth. But far from completely abandoning his teacher's thought, what I would like to suggest to you tonight is that the best way to understand Aristotle is to view his, his innovations 
as ringing so many improvisations on Plato's heavenly music. For both thinkers, Plato and Aristotle, science necessarily includes both dialectical argument, which allows us to understand principles, and deductive argument, which allows us to deduce conclusions from those principles. But there is a difference. If the center point of Plato's science is dialectical argument from forms to forms via forms at the very top level of the divided line, the centerpiece of Aristotle's science is demonstrative deduction, argument that proceeds downward from things to things via principles, including forms derived from things, not from that higher world. So Aristotle reverses Plato's priority, whereas for Plato, noetic deduction from forms to conclusions serve the further purpose of leading our mind higher to intuitive insight directly into forms, for Aristotle is the reverse is true. If you look on your little uh, outline, I mean a little handout here uh, on the page that includes the top two levels of the divided line, you can see those arrows and those arrows indicate the reversal of importance between the dialectical and insightful uh, top level of the divided line which is demoted in Aristotle to second place because what's really important is the deductive reasoning that you can get in a science, okay? So science is all about deductive reasoning, but you have to have those uh, necessary uh, principles, okay? Um, now, uh, at uh, this point uh, then, um, what uh, I would uh, like to do uh, is to uh, indicate that we should turn to a couple of things. These are all, I, I would like to, for you to think of them as innovations by Aristotle on Plato's sort of general approach that you find uh, in the uh, divided line. The first uh, change that Aristotle makes is that there's not one science or wisdom for which people are striving, but there are many sciences, okay? Uh, so he sort of fractured uh, Plato's all-encompassing science into many sciences. Now that means each of them has to have a limited subject or subject area uh, or area of reality. Uh, and this was, in my mind, although uh, it wasn't perhaps as inspiring as Plato's overall vision, nonetheless uh, it was uh, realistic because it is true. Some people are great mathematicians and they're terrible at ethics. And some people are really good at ethics, but they can hardly add two and two and make, uh, and make four, all right? So the idea that there are many sciences is uh, really important, okay? Now at this point, see I'm really a classroom teacher, although I've done a fair amount of research and publishing, but at this point I want to ask people, you know, a question, but I'm not going to do that, we can do that later, all right? <laughs> uh, now, if each science has a subject, all right, it also requ requires principles, uh, to use when reason deduct reasoning deductively, and it also includes conclusions to be drawn. So Aristotle says every science has these three parts, the subject or subject matter, the principles which guide the study and especially guide 
our what? Our proving conclusions and then uh, the uh, conclusions uh, themselves, okay? All right, now uh, at this point, uh, what I'm going to do, I've come to the spot where I just throw out a bunch of stuff from this longer paper and I'm gonna move over to the kinds of principles which are very, very important uh, that, uh, uh, we, uh, that Aristotle recognizes. Aristotle recognizes three kinds of scientific principles. The first he calls axioms because they're worthy of credence by all humans since they are presupposed by all human thought and discourse. They, de they derive from the very structure of reality and as axioms they govern everything we think and do, but they're not part of our normal reasoning process. But without them, we couldn't do anything. You're thinking, I hope, of the principle of non-contradiction, which Aristotle called the first principle of demonstration, the law of the excluded middle, and Aristotle's favorite one, actually, the subtraction axiom. All right. Now, for those of you who have read um, uh, uh, Euclid's uh, geometry, at the very beginning, you know there are these things called common notions. Those are, in Aristotle's language, uh, axioms. Right? Uh, the other kinds of uh, principles uh, are called proper principles because they're limited to particular sciences. One science will have one set of proper principles and another science will have uh, a, uh, uh, another set of uh, proper principles. And there are two kinds of proper principles because reasoning, the third act of the mind where we reason things out and prove things, okay, presupposes the first act of the mind where we what? Use our mind to develop ideas. I call it conceptualization. And also the second, which I call assertion, which produces propositions. So in order to reason things out, you've got to have concepts and you've got to have propositions to get on with your uh, reasoning. Following Plato, Aristotle calls the fundamental notions definitions and the fundamental propositions suppositions or hypotheses, but every time I use the word hypothesis nowadays, it gives completely you know, the wrong indication because uh, Aristotle thinks a hypothesis is something you're really sure about, and we think a hypothesis is something that you're not at all sure about. So we've got to be sure uh, about that, okay? <laughs> okay, now uh, I have a, uh, a, a few words uh, about um, uh, I have a few words uh, about Euclid here, but since everybody studies Euclid here, I'll, uh, I think I'll sort of um, uh, skip those over, uh, skip over those. But the question is, what are the proper principles in the different disciplines? Okay, that's the issue that we uh, need to uh, deal with uh, now, and uh, at least uh, at least for uh, Aristotle in physics, in his physical treatises, and in his metaphysics, the proper principles, the ones he spends a lot of time with, are the four causes. Material cause, formal cause, efficient cause or agent, and final cause or uh, end. And I hope everybody who's read um, Plato's, uh, I mean, Plato's Phaedo recognizes that in the famous sort of autobiographical part where Socrates is talking about uh, his intellectual development, 
uh, Socrates said, and Plato is telling us, he said he first followed the way the natural philosophers or, or natural scientists uh, uh, approach things and emphasize the material cause and the agent cause. And then he says straight out in the Phaedo, but those aren't causes at all. They contribute to things happening, but the real causes are the what? The final cause and the formal cause because they exist in the higher world of the forms, okay? Uh, so uh, we need to know, uh, and um, I wish I had time to tell you more about, the, uh, about these, um, uh, these principles, but we need to know at least what the, what the proper principles for Aristotle are, and they're the same in metaphysics and all the physical sciences, and there are the four causes but later Aristotelians don't always agree with that. Later Aristotelians say, okay, the four causes are really the best kind of causes to study the natural world, okay? But not always metaphysics. And there's a guy, I've done a little study of uh, a, a, a Muslim guy named Avicenna and, and then a person who sort of followed his thought named Thomas Aquinas, who said when you, when you turn to metaphysics, the principles that we use are not the four causes. There's something called essence and existence. And Aquinas even wrote a little treatise when he was young called On Being and Essence, an alternative title of which is On Essence and Existence, if you look at the manuscripts, which I happened to do one time, all right? Okay, all right. So we need to know those. Uh, we need to know those uh, those principles. All right. Now the question uh, at uh, this point uh, is: um, Well, if we've got the principles, then we're going to generate conclusions. But don't get don't misunderstand me here. It's not like we sit in our room and just start generating conclusions. That's not the way Plato and Aristotle or Aquinas or Avicenna think things happen at all. The way it happens is you go out and look at the world, try to understand it, and then in order to prove that your ideas are really correct, you have to use those principles to prove things uh, and to, uh, uh, and to uh, demonstrate conclusions. Demonstrate means use deductive syllogistic reasoning to draw conclusions using middle terms, like if I said Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, then I can conclude that Socrates is mortal because I've got a valid syllogism, and if my principles are correct, I can know that is with absolute certainty, even, well, Socrates is dead, but you're not, even before you die. So you can ask yourself, do I know that I'm going to die? And the answer is, well, yeah, of course you do. Except some people don't want to say that because they say, well, no, that goes beyond what I've experienced. That goes beyond my database, all right? But we all know here, of course, I'm sorry. Why did I pick this example? I don't know. I could have picked another example. I'm really sorry, all right? All right. Now, 
here's the big topic. Do I have 20 minutes, Dr. Hattrop, to talk about the big topic? All right. Here's the big topic. See, I wanna, I wanna move around. All right, I have to stay here. Okay, the, the, big topic is, the big topic is this. It's one thing to say something is true, okay? All right. Dr. Gardner is sitting down, all right? It's another thing to say something is necessarily true. So think of it this way to go back to Socrates or go back to you. Are you sure you're going to die? Or is that just your best guess? And the answer is, you're certain about it. It's a necessary truth. Why is it a necessary truth? Because you're a human. And it's a necessary feature of being a human that all humans die because humans are animals. See, so we're getting into the kind of reasoning which is involved, and it goes from Euclid all the way through all the other disciplines, at least according to Aristotle, uh, and it seems to me uh, that uh, Aristotle is quite uh, correct on this. Now, the big issue then is, okay, and here I'm going to stop lecturing and start reading again, all right? If everything hinges on the principles, how do we come to know the principles and how do we come to know that not just what you would call contingent truths, like a matter of fact, like somebody sitting in the third row, all right, but they're necessary truths because you can't get real scientific knowledge unless the conclusions you, that you draw uh, give you uh, what? Necessary knowledge. Okay? So, at this point, I'm at section nine, if you want to know where I am, which is the last section, all right? And I want to begin where we ended, that is to say, I mean, end, uh, I want to end where we began, excuse me, uh, and that is uh, with uh, Plato. So there's going to be a bit from now on of comparison of Plato and uh, Aristotle uh, here. All right. Um, and I'm going to refer to a book that I think you read, but it's a hard book called The Posterior Analytics. And I'm going to uh, refer in, uh, particularly to a portion of the Posterior Analytics, the very last chapter, which has a parallel in the very first chapter of the uh, Metaphysics. Okay, uh, this is where uh, Aristotle considers very briefly, but I don't think too briefly, although most people do, all right, how we come to know scientific uh, principles, all right? So we're gonna look at them uh, with uh, sort of referring to uh, Plato uh, as uh, much uh, as we uh, can. Um, and this isn't historically bad because Aristotle could expect that everybody in his audience for whom he wrote uh, knew Plato's thought uh, very uh, well. Um, perhaps this will help us to understand the views of both the philosophers uh, and uh, it 
is true that both agree we cannot draw necessarily true conclusions unless they are based on necessarily true principles and we can only understand those necessarily true principles through non-discursive intellectual insight. It's called in Greek noesis or nous and in Latin intellectus. All right, so uh, this uh, is uh, the uh, issue. Uh, it's the issue which drove Plato to say that there are these forms and it's the issue which Aristotle is now going to say, we've gotta have some forms, but not Plato's kind of forms, all right? Because as he says, he loved Plato, but he loved the truth more. <laughs> okay, so uh, here we go. He starts off his consideration of these first principles, well, I hate to say it, with a little swipe at Plato. He would be, uh, it would be odd, Aristotle says, if we already knew these principles, for then it would follow that we already had much better knowledge than demonstration without knowing we had much better knowledge than demonstration. That's uh, directed at the theory of recollection that you find in a couple of works of, uh, uh, of Plato, okay? Um, uh, now, uh, so for Aristotle, as for Plato in the Republic and the Symposium, I think, and even in the Phaedo, we come to learn the principles of demonstration because the intellect that we are given begins life how? As a scraped tablet, completely empty no principles that are embedded from the beginning, like somebody silly like Descartes said, okay? All right? Now, uh, what uh, Aristotle uh, does by way of uh, argument uh, has four steps, and you can see those uh, steps if you look on the Aristotle side of the uh, handout, okay? So he begins, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a reading of this one chapter, the last chapter of his book, the Posterior Analytics, but I've, I've offered you this sort of schema to try to help to uh, understand uh, this uh, reading. Uh, so uh, Aristotle begins by dividing the genus animal. All animals have sensation. Some can remember what they sense, others can't and even fewer, only the humans, he says, from, quote, repeated memories of the same thing can have what he calls experience, imperia. And for very few, not even all humans, from experience, we can, if we really try hard, become uh, knowledgeable uh, in an art, a techne in the practical realm, or in a science in the theoretical, uh, in a theoretical realm. Now Aristotle's division is not just designed to explain these attributes through a definition using genus and difference, if you're familiar with that. See, I wanna ask people, how many people know about uh, definitions using genus and difference? But I'm not gonna do that, all right? Um, uh, he adds, Aristotle does, that at each level, all right, Actions at that level come from an interior, what he calls natural power in the acting thing. That's important, so we're looking inside now. And that power is Aristotle's real focus because it is a power for the subject to achieve a certain kind of knowledge. 
in taking in a kind of object using a particular method. I'm going back to subject, object, method uh, on your handout. So if we distinguish sensation and memory on the one hand from experience, which then is designed, uh, is distinguished from art and science, we can begin to see how Aristotle is offering a reply to Plato by situating experience as the connecting link between sensation that we start with, okay, and intellectual knowledge that we end with. Okay, now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start at the bottom level, level four, and just go up, but I'm on the Aristotle side, not on the Plato side of your uh, chart. Okay, now, the Platonic method of image thinking, which I mentioned before, is to compare different individual things, a comparison which is built squarely on sensation and memory. So Aristotle's talking about sensation and memory. That's the basis for image thinking in uh, Plato. In such a comparison, things or objects of our thinking are individual physical things. So here we have a point of agreement for both Plato and Aristotle. Scientific knowledge begins with sensation of uh, individual visible things and then we compare them using memory. That's why Aristotle talks about sense and memory, all right? Uh, but there is a different uh, a point of uh, emphasis. Aristotle focuses on the sensory basis of image thinking while Plato had focused on the intellectual side. So at the bottom level, pretty much the same between these two thinkers. Now we're gonna go to uh, the next level